everybody. So I'm off on maternity leave and we're mixing it up on Coach's Corner. And what you're about to hear is an interview that I did a while ago, a year or two ago, that was just really popular and you may have missed or you may want to hear it again. So we are re-airing it. So enjoy this interview. Hope you learned some awesome things. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Coach's Corner. Oh my goodness, we have been on fire with our guests lately, and today is no different. I've been so blessed to have so many people that are mentors to me that I look up to on the show, and today's guest, Mel Robbins, is one of those people. I was so excited when she said yes to this interview. Let me tell you a little bit more about Mel Robbins, and if you ever deal with worry and anxiety, oh my gosh, you're going you're gonna to love this. So Mel is one of the leading voices in personal development and transformation and an international best-selling author. Her work includes the global phenomenon, The Five-Second Rule, the upcoming High Five Habit, that's her new book, four number one best-selling audiobooks, the number one podcast on Audible, as well as signature online courses that are just changing lives all over the globe. Her groundbreaking work on behavior change has been translated into tons of languages and her work is used by some of the leading brands to inspire people to be more confident, effective, and fulfilled. As one of the most widely booked and followed public speakers in the world, Mel coaches more than 60 million people online every month. There's nothing Mel loves more than making a difference in people's lives by teaching them to believe in themselves and inspiring them to take the actions that will change their lives. And you can tell from this interview, she's just so committed. She's an incredible teacher as well in terms of really explaining and breaking down worry, anxiety, even depression. And her vulnerability is incredibly touching to me. You know, she's someone that I can believe in and trust because she's walking the talk. So now on to my interview with the one and only Mel Robbins. Mel, welcome to the show. I am just really honored and excited that you're here. Thank you. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Mm, well, you're someone that, as I was saying before we started recording, that that I learned from, that I look up to, and I, you're just such a great balance of vulnerability and talking about the real, real stuff and also really practical, actionable tips. And I love that unique blend that you have that you can play in both those worlds. And I wanted to start talking about something that is a huge subject for my audience. Like so many of the callers that call in really are learning how to deal with anxiety and worry and even panic. So do you mind just sharing a little bit about your journey with those things? And then we can kind of get to some tips for how people can deal with them. Of course. For those of you that don't know me, I guess I should say that I'm 53 years old and I have struggled with panic, worry, and anxiety. And they are incredibly related and mm-hmm. interconnected and understanding all three of them and how they work together and some simple tools that you can use um, to interrupt each one of them and calm yourself down and get control of your reaction. That's the key. And I didn't know how to do this for a long time. Uh, I was a kid who was a worrier. I was homesick at every camp. And then the worrying kind of escalated into anxiety. And then anxiety became almost kind of my default mode of living. And uh, I have certainly experienced the terror of having panic attacks. And Mm -hmm. it wasn't until I turned 45 that I uh, was able to fully understand what I'm about to share with you. And I started by using something I call the five second rule to interrupt the worries that uh, were causing me to constantly feel like I was on edge or about to be hijacked by anxiety. Mm -hmm. And I also combined it with some research that I discovered from Harvard Medical School that will help you literally trick your brain in in moments where you feel really, really nervous and you're prone to being hijacked by your anxiety. So before you have a panic attack, shutting it down. Mm. And so I have a ton of experience with this. I also took Zoloft for two decades and Zoloft was a lifesaver. It was uh, when I was like 23 in law school, having cascading panic attacks Mm. every day that I was finally diagnosed with a generalized anxiety disorder. And Zoloft basically kind of served to turn down the volume on my brain. What none of this solved, though, is kind of the self-loathing that was underneath it all. Mm. And so what I'm going to do in our conversation about anxiety right now, and keep in mind, 
I am not a medical doctor. I am not a psychologist. I, uh, you know, if the, if it's true that you can be an expert in something, if you have 10,000 hours of experience with it, I think I might be the world's leading expert on anxiety. (laughs) So these are explanations that have helped me understand it. I also remind me when we're done talking about anxiety is something that you're experiencing. Remind me to explain the mistakes I made as a parent Mm. when it came to having kids that have anxiety Mm. and what I would recommend that you do, because the things that I was doing uh, actually made their anxiety worse and I didn't know any better. And Mm. now I do. So first let's talk about worry, anxiety, and panic attacks and how they're all related to one another. So worrying is when you have a negative thought loop that runs in your mind about something that's going to happen in the future. My daughter calls this the what if loop. The what if this goes wrong? What if that happens? What if they're mad at me? What if this doesn't? And worrying and getting caught in the what if loop is a very common thing. It's normal. It's okay. It becomes a problem when you live there. And it becomes anxiety when all of those worries in your body or in your mind, rather, the what if this, what if that, worrying about what's about to happen signals to your body that something's wrong. So in my world, the way that I explain it is a worry is when your mind thinks something is about to go wrong. Anxiety is when your body starts to feel that something is going to go wrong. And so the worry is sort of an alarm in your mind. Mm -hmm. Anxiety is your body is now sounding an alarm, and that has to do with your nervous system. And a panic attack is when your mind and your body get so worked up, sounding the alarm in your mind and having your nerves feel on edge, that your panic attack is basically like an emergency break. It's when your body's like, okay, I got it. There's an alarm and we're going to take over now and get you out of here. And so if you've ever had a panic attack, somebody is typically trying to dart out of the room or they're frozen, or they're just hard to console or calm down because they've got to get out of where they're going, or they're convinced that something's happening. And so I want to explain a very normal worry, anxiety, and panic response, okay? Because there's a purpose to all of this. Your worries uh, can be very productive. If you worry about something and it causes you to change your behavior or it causes you to take action in a productive way, that worry is very helpful. The problem for most of us is rumination that starts to trigger an uneasy feeling in your body. So um, I'll give you a very normal anxiety response. So let's say that you and I are driving down the road in Austin and we are going to go to, uh, I can't remember my favorite taco joint that I just love when I go there. It just Mm. blew out of my mind. Um, But um, you and I are driving. Uh, is Franklin Barbecue back? Maybe we'll go to Franklin Barbecue. Oh, yeah. Franklin's always a good, so we're a good go-to. we're going to Franklin Barbecue. And we're chatting up a storm. We're driving the car. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a semi-truck veers into our lane. Mm. In that moment, your mind will immediately go, oh, my God, mm-hmm. that's a worry. Your body will flood with adrenaline. And it will go into a state of alert. That is an anxiety response. An anxiety response just means your body is getting ready to do something, to take a test, to give a speech, to have a difficult conversation, to try something for the first time. Your body is preparing to go into a hyper alert mode so it can pay attention. Your body just had that anxiety response, which is totally appropriate to having a semi-truck move in to your lane. And when your body is in that state of alert, you're hyper aware of everything. And in a nanosecond, as that semi-truck comes inches from us, the panic takes over. And without even thinking, you swerve out of the way. That is a completely appropriate worry, anxiety, and panic response that is hardwired into your body and is designed to keep you safe in situations where there is a threat or where you need to pay attention and you need to have your entire body, mind, and spirit firing on all cylinders. Mm. Now, what's interesting about that example is as the semi-truck pulls away from us and as we 
come back into our lane. And as the drive goes back to normal, what happens in your brain, body, and spirit? Mm. Mm. It all settles down, right? Yep. Yep. It's like, ooh, relief sets in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason why everything settles down is because the anxiety response made a lot of sense. Yep. Of course you would feel that way if a semi-truck were pulling into your lane. Of course. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. The threat's gone. I can go back to normal. The problem with generalized anxiety, so the kind of anxiety that's low grade, that's just gnawing at you, where you constantly feel exhausted and on edge and triggered and just raw, waiting for the next shoe to drop. And the problem with panic attacks, when it becomes something that you deal with all the time, is that there is no corresponding thing that has it make sense. You'll be standing in your kitchen making a cup of coffee, just like you do every morning. And all of a sudden there'll be a flood through your body and your heart will start to race. And you'll feel this incredible wave of intense sort of alarm. But as you look around, you don't know why. And so if you don't know why it's happening, then your mind kicks in and starts to go, what's wrong? Something's wrong. Something's wrong. Something's wrong with my heart. And then as your worries spin like crazy, the alarm in your body gets bigger. And that's when the panic attack happens. Yep. And you can get yourself so scared that it might happen that you can actually bring them on. Oh yeah. Panic about a panic attack. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's very, very normal. And so a couple things like my, um, my way of finally getting in front of this was to start with the worries. And, you know, I want to distinguish our conversation between anxiety and trauma. Mm. So there's a really big difference between feeling anxious and having a trauma response. Right. So, you know, trauma is a, and I'm going to talk about, you know, obviously uh, trauma is a negative experience that's been recorded in your brain and your nervous system. And you can have a trauma response based on time of day, a certain smell, Mm -hmm. a sound, like a lot of people feel very anxious at night when the sun goes down. And there's a reason. Yep. You can trace it all the way back to the fact that that's when mom or dad came home and then you, the you know what hit the fan in your household. Mm-hmm. And you're safe right now, but just the fact that that time of day and dusk or the sound of a car pulling up in gravel or the click of a beer can opening, those are all things that can put you on edge. And if you never knew why, start to connect the dots backwards to what those sounds or what that time of day is connected to. And that's how you start to kind of unwind these things and get to the source of what happened. But if we just stay in the lane of generalized anxiety and just feeling anxious, I want to say a couple things about what you can do right now. Number one, after the last 18 months, it is my personal opinion that there is something wrong with you if you don't feel anxious. I mean, (laughs) we have lived... In a moment of sustained on edgeness, yes, your nervous system is fried. The reason why you feel emotionally exhausted all the time is because of the sustained change mm-hmm. and uncertainty that you've been living through. And fear. You yeah. have been shouldering mm-hmm. an inhumane amount of change and stress and overwhelm and cognitive load. And so feeling like your nervous system is fried and you're just so easily triggered, that is normal based on what you've just experienced. And so what I want you to understand is that knowing that it's okay that you feel that way, I want to teach you something very simple that you can do to soothe your nervous system. And I know you talk about this a lot, but I will uh, explain for anybody that doesn't know, you have two nervous systems. One of them is the on-edge, stressed-out, dysregulated, traumatic, Mm anxiety-ridden, sympathetic nervous system. This is your fight or flight. This is what has been firing for 18 months straight as you've been surviving this pandemic. And there's a second nervous system, which is your parasympathetic nervous system, and that is your at-rest, calm cool, collected nervous system. 
And if we go back to the truck example that I just gave you, when the truck swerves into our lane, your sympathetic, fight or flight, anxious, traumatic nervous system fires up. The second the threat is gone and you experience a letting down and a grounding back down into your body and a sense of feeling safe and in control again, your parasympathetic nervous system just took control. And what's really, really awesome is you have a treasure inside your body called the vagus nerve. It runs from your seat all the way through every major organ, through your vocal cords and up through the top of your head. And the vagus nerve is super cool because it is the on-off switch. It will turn off your fight-or-flight nervous system, and it will turn on your parasympathetic, cooled-down, grounded, calm, resting nervous system. And what we know based on research is that in order for you to be able to focus, to be present, to learn new behavior, to feel in control of your life, you cannot be in a fight or flight state. Mm. And so this comes from Dr. Judy Willis from UCLA and extensive research that she's done as a neuroscientist that basically shows you that when you're on edge, stressed out, dysregulated, emotionally fried, it's impossible for the prefrontal cortex to actually function. And this makes sense because in the example that I gave you of the semi-truck coming into our lane, as that's happening, would you and I be able to solve a math problem? Uh, of course no. not. <laughs> yeah, it, it takes over your cognitive functioning. So the I write about this in this in the new book, The High Five Habit, and I call it high-fiving your heart. And so high-fiving your heart is a simple, free, science-backed tool you can use immediately. And I want you to put it as part of your morning routine. And it's very simple. Just take your hands and put them on your heart. And right when you put them on your heart, or I, I actually put mine right in the center of my chest because my hands are really big. So it just kind of spreads out across my chest. As you press against that center of your chest and on your heart, I want you to take a deep breath. And then you're going to repeat these three sentences. I'm okay. I'm safe. I'm loved. Mm. And you can say them out loud. You can repeat them to yourself. And why don't you do that for me? I'll say them out loud. <clears throat> Mm-hmm. I'm okay. I'm safe. I'm loved. What do you feel? Mm. Peace. Love, yeah. presence, calm, all those things. Yeah. Yeah. All those things. And, you know, you might need to do it 53 times the first morning. You, <laughs> said. you might be standing in the grocery store and you all of a sudden, for some reason, just feel this surge because of a text you just looked at. This is a tool that you need to start using to soothe your weary nervous system, mm -hmm. to bring you back into your body. And the reason why I want you to start doing this every single morning is because we know based on research, your mood and your nervous system state in the morning impacts your productivity, your focus, and your happiness all day long. And so every morning, if you're somebody who is waking up and you feel the weight of the world on your shoulders and you feel anxious and the thoughts are swirling and you dread getting out of bed and you feel defeated, put your hands on your heart, take a deep breath and say, I'm okay, I'm safe, I'm loved. And if you can hear yourself thinking it, you will literally, it's true. Yeah. In that moment, it's true. It doesn't yeah. matter if you're waking up in a shelter or a mansion. In that moment, you are okay, you are safe, and you are loved by yourself. Yeah. And it's a super important tool with anxiety because there's such a strong interweaving between your worries and how your body's feeling. Mm -hmm. And so if you can feel comfortable in your own skin, you are less likely to have the worry hijack and escalate it. Yep. Now, the second thing that, go ahead. Did you want to ask a question? Well, I'm just, this is all really resonating because my nickname as a kid was worry wart. You know, my parents, mm -hmm. when they would go out to dinner and I had a babysitter and this was before cell phones, they'd have to call like every hour and tell me they were still alive because I just have visuals of them in a five car pileup. And then I was put on Prozac at 11 or 12. And so just always kind of dealt with depression, worry, anxiety, got off of antidepressants at 30 and I'm in my forties now. 
So the last decade and some has been about me learning how to not quote unquote necessarily manage it, but understand it and find tools that work. And I'm so glad you brought up trauma because that's such a great distinction because sometimes we are actually having a trauma response and no anxiety tools are going to work with that. We have to go and deal with the trauma, which is such an important part of our healing and was such an important part of my healing. And I couldn't make the anxiety go away because the, the anxiety was actually a trauma response. It was an alarm that, right. Hey, there's some issues that you need to deal with. And I had repressed memories that, that came up in my thirties that I was like, Oh wow. Yeah, and when they came up, I'm like, no wonder I'm so anxious. <laughs> like, this makes so much sense. And you know, I can, I can sort of have a laugh about it now, but it was actually a relief because it was like, Oh my gosh, I have some answers. But then what happened, and I know we'll probably talk about this, is the the worry and the anxiety became a habit, became a habit. Oh, yeah. It becomes and your default. It totally becomes your default. So this is such a great tool because these things, they interrupt, right, that the pattern and the program. And the more we do these, the more we feel like this isn't running me. I actually can can you know notice the worry or notice the anxiety and do the 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, which we'll talk about, or do the hands to heart. I'm okay. I'm safe. I'm loved, which, you know, connects to our inner child so much as well, because we all (laughs) needed to feel that way when we were children and we often didn't. And, you know, we can really learn how to greet and deal with those worries and anxieties that come up. So I, I just, I, I personally have experienced what you're saying and I know these things work. Yeah. And I think, you know, having been, um, having a lot of childhood drama, I'll tell you, I also think the, the high five to the heart, um, mm. does help you yeah. with trauma responses because, you know, when you're in addressing trauma, well, whether it's EMDR or it's, um, some of these new psychedelic guided therapies, mm-hmm. both of which I've done, both of which have been profoundly effective because, mm-hmm. you know, if you didn't talk yourself into the trauma, you're not going to talk yourself out of it. Correct. You need to have a corresponding physical disruption to what the trauma uh, did to your nervous system. And so this is actually using the vagus nerve in this way will help you smooth out that trauma response alongside some of these other modalities that, that really, really help. And, you know, when you talk about the worries, this is the next thing that you're going to do. So this is how you use the five second rule. Pediatricians around the world are using the five second rule in this manner. And I have had an entire wing of an inpatient unit in a Philadelphia psych ward, Hmm. um, write to me and they ended up coming to the talk show when I was doing a daytime talk show and said that of all the tools that they give people who have had an inpatient commitment uh, that are struggling with severe depression, suicidal ideation. The five second rule is the most Mm. effective tool that they have to give people because it's simple. You can remember it and it works to interrupt those thoughts that just drag you down and make you feel hopeless and isolated. And so the same is true with worry. So some of your anxiety begins with your nervous system, but a lot of anxiety begins because your default thinking pattern is simply to think, 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 and worry, 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 worry. And so the first thing that you're going to do is you need to just start to notice when your thoughts are drifting to a place that makes you feel on edge. And the first step is to interrupt them. So, you know, if you're worrying about a presentation that's coming up, you're worrying about something that's going to happen. You're worrying about like my daughter right now is worried about whether or not she's going to find an apartment in South Boston four months from now. Mm. Worried about it, 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 worried. There there aren't any checking every day, worried about Mm. it, worried about it, worried about it. Um, And that's not serving her. It's making her feel anxious. It's making like it's hard to get out of that loop. And so the first thing is to notice it. And then you can use the five second rule. You count backwards, five, four, three, two, one, because that pattern of worrying and the what if where you're tracking about somebody's health or you're tracking about the job interview or you're just looping like you're spinning the same load of laundry in your head over and over and over again. When you count backwards, five, four, three, two, one, you stop the worry. And by the time you get to one, you have a moment of control. And the only thing I want you to say, you can pick one of two things. They both work. You can either say, I'm not thinking about that. Mm. That's it. Mm. Five, four, three, two, one. I'm not thinking about that. Five, four, three, two, one. I'm not thinking about that. Or you can say five, four, three, two, one. What if it all works out? 
Hmm. I love what if questions like that. <laughs> yeah. What if it all works yeah. out? What if it all works out? That's it. And I only want you to practice for a week getting in the habit of actually catching it and interrupting it. You can't replace it yet because you're, you don't have enough distance from it. And you're not going to believe the positive thought. I actually write in the high five habit about the fact that most mantras don't work because we pick mantras we don't believe. Right. You know, right. if you study, if you struggle with, you know, your appearance or you have body dysmorphia standing in front of a mirror and saying, I love myself, it's, it's not going to work because you mm. actually don't. <laughs> you have to right. pick something. Your brain's reject, your brain will reject it actually. Yeah. And so you have to pick something that's actually more meaningful or a little more lame. I deserve to feel healthy. Mm. Even mm. if you don't like how you look, you can get behind that. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. Um, I deserve to treat myself with kindness. Mm. I'm doing the best I can. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like those sorts of things that are believable. They land. Yeah. That starts to change things. But so you first start five, four, three, two, one, use a five second rule, interrupt the habit loop that is encoded in your subconscious, catch it. And then just say, what if it all works out? Or I'm not thinking about that. And then when you start to get better at interrupting it, because when you interrupt it, guess what? If it's not spinning, it's not going to make your body feel more anxious. Mm. Mm. Yep. And then what you do is this is the next step is after about a week of doing that, now go through your day and write down all the things that trigger you. And this as works they happen or kind of at the end of the day? What's the better or way to do that? Kind of like as they're happening mm-hmm. or you can think about the, tomorrow. What are the things that you're worried about that are going to trigger you? What are the situations that might bring up anxiety? So you're going to do what they call A-B planning. And they find that when people make an A-B plan, when this, when A happens, then B. So when I walk into work and I have to give this presentation, then B. And you plan your response, you're like 60 to 70% more likely to be successful when you do this type of A-B planning. And you can do this with your thoughts because once your mind starts to scramble with worry or you start to feel slightly on edge, you're screwed. Yeah. Because you have a lifetime of hijacking yourself. So you make a little plan. And like if you have kids, for example, um, and you've got a kid that's really nervous to go back to school because they haven't really been in school, depending upon where you're listening from, and they're getting anxious and they're worried about throwing up and they're scared to go in, make all the little things about the day that make them nervous and then go through and come up with a list of things they could do when that happens. Mm. And that will equip them with a go-to. And now this is where we then go to the third step, which is inserting this brilliant piece of research from Harvard Medical School. And the uh, piece of research is grounded in science. And the science is this. What we call anxiety, an on-edge nervous system, a heart that's racing, stomachs that's in knots, a throat that's tight, hands that are clammy, we all call that anxiety or nerves. It is the exact same physical response as excitement. Yeah. <laughs> There's actually no difference physiologically between a state of being excited about your favorite band coming out onto stage and you being nervous about giving a presentation. You feel the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. The only thing that's different in that situation between excitement and nerves is that your brain believes that the concert is exciting and believes that the presentation is nerve wracking. And so at Harvard Medical School, they wondered, could you trick a brain in a situation where it's nerve wracking to actually reframe it as if it were exciting, even though you don't think it's exciting to give a presentation? And if we could trick the brain to believe that a nerve wracking situation is just exciting, would it impact your performance? And the answer is, yeah, you can trick a brain to think a nerve wracking situation is exciting. And yes, it has a profound impact on your performance. And It goes back to the original piece of research that I shared, which is when your nervous system goes on edge and then your thoughts start to spiral, your prefrontal cortex can't work. So no matter how hard you prepared for that presentation or that test or that exam or that track meet, your nerves kill your performance because you can't focus. Yeah. And so if you now make your list of the things that make you nervous, I've got a presentation tomorrow. I'm nervous. My neck is going to be red. I'm nervous. I'm going to screw up. I'm nervous. People are going to think it's bad. Those are all the things and thoughts that make you start to spiral. So you're going to go make your little plan 
And then you're going to write down on the other side of the piece of paper, why why are you excited to do this? Well, I'm excited because I put a lot of work in. I'm excited because I want to be more visible at work. I'm excited because I want to get it over with. And then the way that you put this all together is when you start to feel yourself go on edge or you start to feel your thoughts spin. You use the five-second rule to interrupt the worry and anxiety response, five, four, three, two, one. And then you simply say, as dumb as it sounds, I'm so excited to give this presentation. I'm so excited to get it over with. I'm so excited because I'm prepared. And even though you're going to have butterflies and even though your heart's going to be racing, it's not going to escalate because you have literally stopped down your brain Mm. from spiraling and worry and escalating the anxiety response in your nervous system. Yeah. Pretty cool, huh? Yeah, it is really cool. And I can think of so many examples like, um, we were hiking in Montana and I was, there's bears in Montana, like grizzly bears, not just black bears. Mm -hmm. And of course my mind was having a field day with that. (laughs) Like I, I just thought that we were just going to be attacked by a bear no matter where we went. And my husband's like, we're fine. We're fine. We're fine. Like, it's no big deal. Like we're fine. And I was like, no, I need to talk to park ranger. I need to know what I do exactly if I see a bear. I mean, we had bear spray and all this kind of stuff. And so found this park ranger and had a great conversation about what I need to do, what bears like, what they don't like, you know, basically what do you do? And it made me feel so much better. Cause I'm like, okay, I have a plan. I understand. I, if, if a, if, if bear, then this. So I think that is so helpful. And sometimes we don't, we get so caught up in the worry and that loop, that looping that happens in the obsessive thinking that we're like, wait, let let me go to worst case scenario and actually have a plan for it so that I know what to do. And that helps the brain get out of the uncertainty where it's going to fire up the nervous system and really come into, okay, I have some knowing, like I have some knowing of what I'm going to do. And like you said, we can go to what if like an amazing best case scenario, which is awesome too. I know for me, the way my brain works, sometimes I have to go, okay, if the worst thing happens, what's my plan? (laughs) Just so I, I have some kind of plan, you know? Totally. Thank you. I, I love the example. It's a perfect example. You're right. Mm-hmm. I, I'm curious about something. Do you, cause you're a huge speaker, one of the most sought after speakers. Do you get nervous before you go on stage? Do you have anxiety before you speak in front of large crowds? No, I have an excitement. That's awesome. It's always been that way for you. <laughs> no, no. If you watch my TEDx talk, which now has 27 million views, that, that's the first time I ever gave a speech on a stage in my life. And wow. that's a 21 minute long panic attack you're witnessing. Yeah. I used this strategy that I just taught you to flip my backstage experience from a lived experience of anxiety and nerves. And I'm going to screw this up and this is going to be terrible. And what mm-hmm. if I do this? And what if that? Into standing backstage with the same butterflies, the same heart racing, the same sweaty armpits, the same dry throat and go, I'm about to, I'm about to go do something exciting. Mm. My body's getting ready. My body's getting ready to pay attention. That's by the way, why you have to pee or go, you know, number two, right before you give a presentation or you Mm -hmm. have to take a test. Mm -hmm. When your body goes into a state of alert, whether it's excitement or it is nerves, it's about to pay attention. You don't need your digestive tract to be working. That's why you have butterflies, by the way, the blood leaves your digestive system. So the chemistry of it changes. Mm-hmm. That's what the butterflies are. Doesn't mean you're going to screw everything up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's so it's so interesting. I I started speaking in 2006, and in 2014, I was in JFK Airport, and I don't know why blood sugar, too much coffee. My flight was delayed, and I ended up passing out in the airport and falling on the marble floor and having a mild concussion. And for whatever reason, it started a massive fear of passing out on stage. So Mm. every time before I would go speak, which I would used to be something that I love to do, I would feel like I was going to pass out. And I wasn't afraid of messing up the speech or anything like that. I was afraid of humiliation, of getting up on stage and literally passing out. I wasn't afraid of hurting myself, (laughs) was more afraid of, oh my God, if I pass out, that is going to be so embarrassing. And I struggled with this for years, Mel, for years. And I would book a corporate event And my team would be so excited and I'd be like, oh God, (laughs) oh no. Mm -hmm. Because I'd have to take myself through this whole thing to just like get on stage. And yeah, it was in my, and then afterwards I'd be fried because my nervous system would be, and I'd give good speeches probably not as well as I could had I not been managing, oh my God, am I going to pass out the whole time? 
Um, but then when I was done, I'd be fried because it takes so much energy to push yourself through something when you're anxious. And I'm sure everybody can think of times you've done that and that you're just drained. And so I had to, it was either quit speaking or find a way to, to deal with this because it was taking the joy out of things. And I think a lot of people can think of things in their life that, you know, they've stopped doing like people stop driving or stop traveling because there's so much anxiety. And so we miss out on a lot in life because of our anxiety and worry. And then we have shame because we're like, why can't I just fix this? You know, why can't I just like traveling again or like speaking again or like going out and socializing again? So for those people who maybe have stopped something in their life or feel like they can't do things that they used to be able to do because of worry, because of anxiety, what advice do you have for them? Well, you have two choices. You can let it hold you back or you can attack it head on. Mm. And, you know, in the case that you're talking about, you could certainly use everything we've talked about. And literally the one that would probably dismantle the fear is what if it all works out? Yeah. What if it all works out? Including what if I pass out on stage and it all works out? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the fact is that if you were to pass out on stage, that audience would be so rooting for you mm, mm -hmm. that when you got back up after passing out and the audience had a gigantic, <gasps> and then you get up and they're clapping and then you've got the line that you always say, oh, I do that just so you guys feel sorry for me. <laughs> just make sure you're paying attention. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Now that I know you're awake, um, it becomes something that you're not resisting. Yeah. And that's ultimately what helps. I was about to give a big speech and, um, I was, I had gotten married at that time. And my husband was like, okay, let's just talk through the plan. If you do, if you do, here's what's going to happen. I said, my biggest thing is humiliation. So don't let them call an ambulance. Don't let them like tell everybody I'm fine. I'll get back up. And he's like, and how do you usually feel after you pass out? And I'm like, I actually feel great. <laughs> it's like, I take a little vacation and I get a reset uh -huh. and I feel great after I pass out. He's like, well then great. You'll just get up and give a much better speech. And that's what started shifting it. So exactly. Awesome. I think that's it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I want to circle to depression for a moment because that's another thing that you talk about has, can become a habit. And I think especially, like you said, in the past 18 months, a lot of people have found themselves slipping into, maybe it's not like diagnosable depression, but just feeling really, really depressed. So what's your take on a depression? How would you define it or describe it? And how can we start to shift out of that? Well, true depression is a disease. So unlike anxiety, which is and can become a habit, and even generalized anxiety disorder, I believe, and again, I'm not a medical doctor, stems from untreated trauma. And it stems from uh, having your go-to response to anything that's uncertain or stressful spiral into a pattern of anxiety. Because here's the thing about anxiety. It's really useful. Mm -hmm. When you're anxious, people help you. When you're anxious, you can avoid stuff. When you're anxious, you draw the attention to you. Look, I, I, I got a lot from my anxiety. And mm. so that's why I say it's a learned behavior. It's a natural response to certain situations. But when it gets rewarded or it doesn't get addressed, it becomes a coping mechanism anytime you feel uncertain. And this is why I think it's really important to say to everybody, if you have kids with anxiety, the number one thing you cannot do is rescue them. Mm -hmm. And if you have anxiety, it's super triggering when your kids call in a state of panic or when your kids want to sleep on your bedroom floor because they're scared of what's going on in their bedroom. When you rescue them and say, it's okay, come into bed with mommy, it's okay, you can sleep on the floor, you are basically saying, you're right, you can't handle this. You're right, this is too scary for you. When mm. really, and I made this mistake for far too long because their anxiety triggered my anxiety and then I would want to rescue them and I'd want to call the school and make sure that they have a special this and a certain that or call that parent or, oh, okay, you can do a sleep under instead of a sleep over. You can do a this instead of a that. When the truth is what your kids need to hear is, I know it's scary and I believe in you and you can do this. Mm. And I'm going to walk you right back up to your room and mm. I'm going to sit out here while you go back to sleep. Mm. And then I'm going to go down to bed. 
And if you come back down, guess what? I am going to walk you right back up here. And is there anything that might help you? Like, can you think of anything that might help you feel a little better? Would you like the closet light on? Mm. Like help them problem solve and right. think through what they need for support. Help them create their AB plan. Okay, if you get to school and that bully's there, what are you going to say? Who are some adults you can go to? What's something you can do? It's normal to be nervous, but you're stronger than this. Yeah. And I believe in you and I have your back and you're going to be okay. Yeah, I love that. It's the mm -hmm. feeding into the anxiety and letting your kids opt out and reminding and reinforcing that you're too weak to face something. That's what's creating this epidemic. Yep. Yep. And the saving, because one thing I see with parents is they're so uncomfortable with their kids' discomfort that they'd rather just go in and fix it so that they're more comfortable. And because it's so hard to see your kids suffer versus like, let them be in the suffering, let them be in the discomfort and teach them, like you said, how to problem solve, empower them so that they don't become dependent on something outside of them, rescuing them from anxiety, because that's what happens. Kids grow up, they turn into adults. There's, there's no one there to, to save them. And we just kind of get into this loop where we feel really, really helpless. So that's such a great parenting tip. And I also wanted to ask you if you're a parent and you have a lot of anxiety and worry, how do you not project that on your kids? Um, not want to wrap them in cotton wool. <laughs> you know, how do you really deal with your anxiety as a you parent? Deal mm -hmm. You deal with your own. Like the only parenting method that actually works is show, don't tell. Like there's nothing less effective than telling your kids to do one thing and then acting the opposite. Right. Right. And so if you're serious about not wanting your kids to be anxious, start uh, dealing with your own immediately. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, I think a lot of this, um, also is about this high five habit that I just have written about. I, I really like, I'm telling you that, you know, when you ask the question about depression and unlike anxiety, depression is a disease. I'm married to somebody who struggles with it. It is like a dark cloud mm -hmm. that weighs you down. And the one thing I have to say about depression is that it's lying to you. Mm. Depression makes you feel hopeless. Depression makes you feel isolated. Depression makes you feel low energy and like you can't get out of bed or you can't leave the house or you can't work on your resume and look for a job. And that's a lie. Yeah. And the five second rule is super helpful because we know whether it's medication or it is exercise every single day, or it is meditation, or it is whole foods and being uh, very clean about what you eat, whether it's limiting alcohol, whether it's forcing yourself to get outside the house once a day, to get outside in nature, whether it's seeing friends as much as you can, we know what makes you feel better. The depression is the resistance between where you're at and the things you need to do. And so 54321 is a tool that will help you push through the depression and take the actions that you know and that your doctor has told you will help you feel better and live more fulfilled and effectively with mm -hmm. your depression. And the second thing to do, and we've talked about this word resistance a lot is stop resisting that you have depression. Stop making yourself wrong. Accept it, be kind to yourself, and understand that it's lying to you. And yeah. for whatever reason, this is what's happening at this moment in your life. And if you tap in and discover that strength that's in you to live with this effectively and push through it every day, throughout the day, five, four, three, two, one, I'm telling you, and this is part of what I write about extensively in the high five habit, which are, you know, begins with high fiving yourself in the mirror every morning, but it's really about developing habits every day, like high fiving your heart mm. that are habits grounded in science that give you the encouragement, the support, the celebration, and the love that you need every single day to push through depression, anxiety, disappointment, heartbreak and continue moving forward toward what you want. And if there's one thing that I know more than anything else, it's that you and I can look back at our lives and we can see how every single dot connects to this moment. Mm -hmm. Every heartbreak, every upset, 
every death, every single win, every single loss. You can see how it prepared you. You can see how it tested you. You can see how it strengthened you. You can see how it gave you wisdom. And this moment, the real gift, the real power, the real way to take control of your life is to develop what I call a high five attitude, which is the ability to stand in this moment, no matter what you're facing, good or bad, and know that this too is just a dot on the map of your life. Yeah. And it too is connecting you to something extraordinary that hasn't happened yet. Mm. And your job is simply to wake up every day, to drag yourself into that bathroom, and to see a human being in the mirror that's staring back at you that needs you, that needs your support, that needs your celebration, that needs to be forgiven, and that needs to be encouraged to keep going forward. Mm. That's how you live with this. Mm. I love that. And such, you know, I was going to ask, but you just answered it. How do we live with the state of the world and the uncertainty and the fear and kind of the hopelessness that a lot of people are feeling? But I think you just answered it. It's like, okay, it's a moment and something's going to come of this. And what if it's amazing? What if we're all better after this in, in all kinds of ways? What if the world is better for our children? And I think we have to think like that because otherwise we're just going to fall more into despair. So yeah. What if it all works out? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what if it all works out? What if out? this is preparing me? What if yeah. I have the strength to face this? What if this decision changes my life? What if I push myself out the door, even though the depression's lying to me and I go for a walk and I bump into somebody I'm meant to meet? What yep. if it all works out? Mm. I love that. I love that. Well, Mel, you're amazing as always. Thank you so much for everything that you shared and just everything that you've gone through in your life that have made you able to share this information and be so relatable for so many of us. The high five habit comes out the end of this month. Yes. But I imagine people can pre-order it now. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you may be listening to this two years from now. Right. And so get the book and let me tell you why the five second rule is going to help you take action. The five second rule is going to push you forward. The biggest breakthrough I have ever had in my entire life is the one that I have had by learning how to stand in front of the mirror every single morning and stop criticizing myself or ignoring the woman I see in the mirror and learn how to see the human being in the mirror and learn how to use science, as dumb as it sounds, raise my hand and give that woman I see every single morning a high five because she needs it. Mm -hmm. And the coolest thing about this is that all of the science proves that your body is actually designed to have this work. You don't have to think a thing. Mm -hmm. You do not have to think a thing. When you raise your hand to high five yourself, number one, it's going to feel weird. <laughs> and you should expect that because right now you do, you have the opposite habit. You pick yourself apart. Yeah. You judge yourself. So you that. reject yourself. Mm -hmm. You don't look at yourself. So when you raise your hand, you are going to literally uh, feel weird. So expect it. You got to do this five days in a row, period because you also are going to have one of two things happen. Number one, um, you're either going to laugh out loud or you're going to start crying because it's going to hit you mm. that you have waited your whole life to have this moment where you actually wake up and see yourself. Hmm. Hmm. And the second reaction, and this is the one that most people have, and this is really sad, is you're going to resist this. You're going to scoff at it. You're going to roll your eyes. And let me tell you what that resistance is. When you stand in the bathroom every morning with your reflection, you drag your entire past with you. Yeah. If you have trauma, if you've been abused, if you're heartbroken, if somebody's hurt you, if you're disappointed, if you're not where you think you should be, you will use all of that from your past to, as evidence that the person in the mirror is damaged or unlovable or not good enough. Or if you've done things while you were just trying to survive, you cheated, you drank, you blew up relationships, you didn't know any better, you'd forgive me. You'd forgive somebody else, yeah. but you can't forgive yourself. That's what that resistance is. Yeah. And so you stand there and you withhold the very mm. thing that you need, the very thing that you're looking outside yourself for. You see, we think that if you have the number on the scale or you have the money in the bank 
or you have somebody else fall in love with you, or you get the right job, or you're in the right neighborhood, or your hair's less kinky, or this happens, or that <laughs> happens, that somehow that is going to make you worthy, lovable, and whole. And I'm here to tell you, you have to start practicing the high five habit because it is scientifically proven. It is the way that you can start to build a trusted partnership with yourself right now. Yes. If you can drag yourself out of bed, if you can stand before that mirror, if you can show up one more day, despite everything that you've survived and everything that's been done to you, everything you regret, if you can do that, you deserve a high five <laughs> and you need one. Mm. We need multiples. <laughs> we need them daily. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, you do. And this is how you do it. And the greatest part about all this is as you raise your hand, you're going to notice something. The critic shuts up because it's neurologically impossible for your brain to think something negative as you're high-fiving somebody because you have spent a lifetime high-fiving other people. And so when you high-five somebody or somebody's high-fived you, what, what does it communicate? Mm, like, I see you, validation, approval, you're awesome. Totally. It's already programmed in your brain. Yeah. So when you raise your hand, this is a field called neurobics. It's the fastest way to forge new neural pathways. Your brain recognizes the gesture and it starts to seal all of that. I believe you, I love you, I see you, I got you, we're in this. Come on now, here we go. Mm-hmm. It seals it with your reflection. You know, I've been practicing this for a year. I don't even have to high five myself. You want to know why? Why? I have reset my entire brain. Hmm. I don't even see my body. Hmm. I see a human being who's trying that I love. Oh, I love that. Hmm. It is the most powerful thing I've ever discovered. Oh, and so and freeing. It will <laughs> change your life. Hmm. Hmm. All right, everybody. You know what to do. <laughs> Grab the book. Start practicing the high fiving right now. Practice the five, four, three, two, one. And you know, again, you're speaking to two people who have done this and it's seen the difference. And especially Mel has devoted so much of her life to this. And you heard her story and her background. She's not like superhuman. Doesn't mean you can't do it. It's are you willing and do you believe that you can? That's a big part of it too. Like believe that you deserve to be free of some of the things that hold you back and really believe that you deserve to see yourself and love yourself because we all deserve that. So thank you for being a stand for this work, Mel, and for showing us how it's done. You're so inspiring and loving and helpful. And I just appreciate you and acknowledge you so much. Thank you. 